0: Welcome to the hands-on, hands-off podcast, where we talk about manual therapy with clinicians, researchers and educators. We are curious manual therapists interested in battling misinformation on both sides. We know manual therapy is not a blanket fix for everything, yet we also appreciate that it can be a valuable tool for many. So please sit back and enjoy the show as we unravel the complexities of who, when, what why and maybe even how to apply or not apply manual therapy here are your hosts derek Cluely and seth peterson
1: hello this is derek Cluely with the hands-on hands-off podcast today we are interviewing elizabeth lane elizabeth lane is the recent recipient of the rose excellence in research award winner from the orthopedic academy and figured we really need to get her on the show. Um, And and full disclosure, Elizabeth is a a good friend of mine. And so when we were looking at potential guests, especially early on guests, I really wanted to get her on. Uh, But then uh, especially when it was announced that she was going to be the Rose Excellence Award winner, it made a whole lot of sense to get her on early. Now, the study that she did that we're going to talk about is a lot specific to pain science, which obviously we talk a lot about in manual therapy. And we're going to talk a little bit today about the role that manual therapy plays in that. And so I think that that'll be pretty fun to hear and listen to. But Elizabeth is a, a phenomenal clinician. She is a PhD graduate from the University of Utah, actually did her PhD under Julie Fritz, and has uh been fortunate to stay on at the University of Utah, continuing to conduct research work as well as teaching in the University of Utah's PT program. So if you don't know Elizabeth, you'll get to know her a little bit more after today's podcast. And I'm sure if you're like me, you're going to really get to, to like her quite a bit. Uh, so sit back and enjoy the show. So yeah, welcome everybody to the show. Excited to have Elizabeth Lane on the show. Obviously, Seth and I as your co-host here. I'm excited because Elizabeth and I actually go back a long ways uh, to our days as clinicians uh, and uh, I'm excited because uh, I feel like a part of uh, my lineage to some extent and in, in persuading people to do crazy things. Elizabeth was actually one of those. And then usually when people do crazy things, they do crazier things than me. And ultimately Elizabeth has done a lot crazier things than I have done. And so it's kind of cool to watch and see um, her progression but we obviously have Elizabeth on today because of, one, her manual therapy background and her manual therapy contributions, especially in her young uh, research career, but especially because we were really intrigued by the paper that was the Rose uh, Excellence in Research Award winner from the AOPT titled The Effectiveness of Training Physical Therapists in Pain Neuroscience Education for Patients with Chronic Spine Pain, a cluster randomized trial i love that word too cluster makes it cluster makes the title just sound like you are like doing some sort of really cool research and to be honest with you i want to i can't wait to dive into this paper a little bit because i think the the methods of the study were pretty slick so anyway welcome to the show elizabeth um perhaps you can give our listeners a little bit uh more information about you maybe where you're at what you've done what you like to do what you like to do pty's uh, and all kinds of stuff i don't know i don't have any kind of formal introduction but i want to give you a chance to uh, talk a little bit about yourself obviously here so yeah, welcome well, to the show, elizabeth
2: yeah thanks so much for having me um and it's it's really come pretty full circle to to be able to talk to you today especially you Derek, who you know i i liken you to just a rising tide and and all of that raised all of our ships that were around you um during our time at benchmark so um you know, definitely one of the shoulders I've I've stood on to, to reach higher planes. But um, <clears throat> let's see. So um, I completed physical therapy school in 2009 from the Medical College of Georgia um, and then immediately went into residency program uh, orthopedics with evidence in motion. Um, I needed a couple of years to forget kind of how bad that was. And, um, I, I was coming from a place where I really, really needed residency training. And so, like, you know, drinking from that fire hose, I nearly drowned and I just needed a couple of years to recover, um, before going into fellowship training, finished fellowship training with evidence in motion as well. And was fortunate enough to cross paths with Julie Whitman, who connected me to Julie Fritz. And then, um, out to Utah, I went to complete PhD training out here. Um, still here now on faculty. Um, finished my dissertation in 2020 and um, and was faculty the same year. And so, um, primarily responsible for our musculoskeletal content out here. Um, I've done some other things continuing education wise and directing a residency program right behind you, Derek. Um, and Um, let's see, outside of PT world, um, I like to do sports. I played tackle women's professional football. Um, I guess I should take out the women's from that. Just played um, tackle football for eight years. And now I'm competing in, in CrossFit as a master's athlete. So just could like to continue to push those envelopes as, as we kind of folks do um, in anything that we choose to get involved in. So, um, always looking for something,
1: something to push somewhere. You always like to stay right on that edge, don't you? Sure. <laughs> um, no, very cool. I, I, I'm i going to ask you a couple of goofy questions here first, just to kind of also prime the pump a little bit. Um, Excellent. All right. So you're at a restaurant, you're picking a table for four. You're included in this table. Who are the other three people that you would most like to have at the table with you?
2: Oh, man. <clears throat> uh, I really would love to have my mentor Julie fritz there um i could just listen to her talk all day um and and i always hit myself for not pressing record whenever she's talking because i'm like oh this was amazing and then i go back and think about it i'm like oh i'm i'm not remembering all the amazing things um so i definitely would would have to have uh julie there um i would also have my dad there. He's also always just been very uh, he's uh he's a physician in a small town. So he's definitely um that person that goes above and beyond for everyone and keeps everybody else grounded. Um and so I, I definitely would have my dad there. And then three, I would I would have my partner there. Um uh she's just an amazing person and can talk to anybody about anything. And that would, that would help relieve some pressure from me having to to talk so much and I could just get to listen. And that's my thing. I love to just sit and listen and observe. So um, I definitely, I think that would be, I'd settle on those three, but good
1: question. That was a hard one. Well, we had Julie on the show um, a few episodes before you, and I think Seth and I would both uh, agree with you there that we we didn't want her to stop talking. Uh certainly yeah. uh somebody that you want to listen to. Just give her a topic, let her go. And it's like yeah, absolutely.
2: wow. That I mean, I never would have thought about it from that perspective. Love Julie.
0: And that sounds like a pretty achievable dinner. I mean, man, <laughs> but these people are yeah. But at least Invite your dad over. <laughs> right. Yeah, actually I feel like you might have had that
1: dinner maybe before. Yeah, not that uh, far off. We've got people say things like, well, Thomas Edison on here or something like that. I'm like, well, you can't have them show up to the table with you, but you actually can definitely get this table set. Um last goofy question for now, at least. You're only allowed to eat one food for the rest of your life. What would that be? Oatmeal. Oatmeal. Yeah. So much you can do with oatmeal. Yep. Have it every morning for breakfast. Yeah, that that? was the quickest response.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No hesitation. Every morning, oatmeal. Um, Yeah, love it.
1: That's funny. That's great. Um, My son calls it soggy granola. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when you look at Uh it that way, maybe not as good. But um, Well, cool. So we're going to go ahead and get um, into some of the the questions about uh, this paper. Obviously, you know, um, this is a manual therapy uh, talk. And I think manual therapy is... One of those things that we tend to, I think, sometimes struggle with just in terms of like, what do we do as far as manual therapists go? And there's a lot of times this perception issue that um, we are all familiar with in terms of what it actually is. And, you know, I've, we're here with the hands on, hands off podcast talking about manual therapy. But this paper is very much more centered on pain neuroscience education. And so I'm just curious for you to. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from the, as you already mentioned, that formalized manual therapy fellowship training going into PhD, and then how you got the idea for this research topic. Mm.
2: Um, so, Julia is very um, trailblazing in the way of transla- translational research. And there are many things that I feel like are in our clinical practice guidelines. We've had some efficacy for many of these things and pushing them towards that effectiveness side of the spectrum. So moving from like laboratory type of settings into real world settings, we often, you know, we've had like these things that are, we're just so excited about from the laboratory type of settings. And then when it gets into the real world, um, application of those, it it um it doesn't translate as well. And my my trial, I'm sure we'll get to this later, really speaks to the same thing. Is we have some great interventions, and how do we really get those into clinical practice in a way that we still have that magical piece that's actually moving patient outcomes forward? So this was, <clears throat> um, of course, I wasn't going into it with that lens. Um, of like this, this will fail. Uh, but And it's certainly not a failure. It's just a lesson learned. Um, but I, I think that that's really what got me interested in that is is pushing things from our bench uh, towards our bedside and actual real world application. And I'm, I'm definitely a manual therapist at heart. And when I treat patients, and I rely heavily on manual therapy. And I don't really see Um, pain neuroscience education as a um, hands-off type of intervention that I think some people have um, thought about that pendulum swinging from a very heavy manual to a very like hands-off type of approach and I really appreciate those arguments because it really makes me question what I'm doing and I, I love that introspective look about uh Thought about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and but I feel like pain neuroscience education And we've seen this in some of the literature is always more effective when we're pairing it with other things That we're already doing so there's no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater and get rid of our manual therapy to and start to include some pain science education. It just works well together. Um, and but that's where some of our art comes in as manual therapists to to really um,
0: marry those two together. Elizabeth, you stand on kind of. Um, I mean, maybe if you could talk about. Just when you when you first started and kind of went into this project, where you were on on P&E and how you used it in your practice. And then, you know, I mean, I guess we can circle back onto it, but maybe going into it, if we stick with the timeline here. Where were you when you started? Actually, I'm going to take a couple steps back to
2: residency training when, you know, I was trained in a way that was very um, Rene Descartes type of pain processing. Um, and through residency training, we really started talking about, um, pain science and that, you know, the, the mechanism of pain being processed is all in our, it's really an output of our nervous system. And that is a huge paradigm shift for people, um, when that happens. And, you know, I, It happened a little bit later in my career, I guess, than than people are typically coming out now like being well versed in pain science out of PT school now. Um and so that was a really that was a tough paradigm shift and um for me and it's like, sure, those with chronic pain, theirs is all in their head, but my pain is actually real. And it's like, okay, you really didn't understand pain science at all. And so it took me a couple of years really to understand um, the mechanisms of pain processing. And uh, so when we got to um, PhD training, I you know, was very well versed in this. Um, I won't say I was the best clinician at implementing it because it was you're reading all of these research articles and you're trying to make this make sense in your head so that you can explain it very simply to patients. Um, but I was at a point where I thought that I, I was as good as as many people out there at doing it. And at the time we were writing the grant for this, it was still t when it was the therapeutic neuroscience education. And now it's p um, yeah. So that's how long ago it was. Right. <laughs> I say that because that was a while back. Um, and there were so, there were several efficacy trials out at the time. We didn't have really any systematic reviews at the time I was writing this grant. Um, as far as P&E went, it was just a super promising efficacy type of intervention. Did that answer the question you're getting at, Seth?
0: Yeah, yeah, and this is—I mean, what's the story behind getting these guys involved? This was like an all-star team that you guys assembled. This
2: paper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, knowing that uh, I was—I'm—I'm I'm not prepared to be the absolute e- expert <laughs> on this. It's like I need to get the experts on on board with me. So um, I got them on board after we had submitted for the, the grant application where, um, you know, we have these outlines of what this training will look like, but it's it's really just time-based sort of things. And so it's open still for some more uh, filling in by the real experts. Um, so definitely got some, some great um, feedback and direction from Adrian and Louie on Um, what that P&E training will look like, and uh, Daniel Maddox was instrumental in this as well in writing and formulating the training, and we had both been through the um, TPS, TPS's Therapeutic Pain Specialist through um, Adrian's company at that time was IASP,
0: I believe, so we talk you mentioned the training Can we talk about that for because that was one thing that stood out when I was reading this like this is pretty you know pretty heavy extensive training that the PTs had been through right
2: yeah so the the physical therapist went through um, several online modules where we recorded lectures for them kind of giving them background of PE and and application and kind of giving them the that um Deep in view of, of the neuroscience of pain. And they did 10 hours of online training with lots of quizzes along the way to, to keep folks engaged. And then we did six hours in person of just practicing talking to patients about that. And, um, I'm sure everyone knows that that's really where, um, you, you make those gains and you fall on your face multiple times and trying to explain these things. Um, so um, yeah, that's what that's what our training looked like. So
0: I'm the, curious. The last piece is just crazy to me. Ma, patience in a live course. I'm like, whoo! It's mm-hmm. like pulling my collar away, thinking about that. Yeah, uncomfortable, right? <clears throat> yeah,
2: it's uncomfortable to do that sort of to to mock patient, especially when. Yeah. It takes you back to PT school, right? Like when you're just trying to learn how to talk to people (laughs) Um, and you've got these multiple languages in your brain, right? You've got this like mechanism of pain here and you're like, well, I can't really say these neurons or these, you know, um, all of the the homunculus and all of this stuff. And I can't say that to the patient. I've got to like translate it and then spit it out
1: in a way that makes sense. And that stuff's hard. So I'm curious as a from a researcher's perspective, I like this is a cool methodology, not one. So I course direct evidence based practice. I would never give this to my students to read (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's not your traditional um, RCT approach. Mm -hmm. There's so many layers to the randomized control trial. And I honestly think that that's one of the reasons why this paper stood out and honestly deserved a rose excellence in research award. Obviously the results maybe don't pan out the way we might want them or think them or whatever it might be. And actually, I actually think that that's great. I love research that actually has a null result because I think it makes us think more than when it has an effective result. But at any rate, like how did this come about? Like, were you guys all just sitting around a room, like, like I could just see you, Julie, Jake, Thackeray, like, okay, let's go ahead and like, I mean, the, the the figure is beautiful, but it it always looks prettier on when it's done. But like, how did you guys end up creating this sort of um, cluster randomized trial, really randomizing the regions and the clinics, and and then you know, I, I, what I really love is you actually. Essentially blinded the therapists to knowing whether or not they were even in the study, uh, because the patients may or may not that they were seeing may or may not even have been in the study. Like I mean, that that to me is like cutting edge stuff. So I was just curious. Take us to the take us to the table, the dinner table, and talk to us about how this design came out. <laughs> yeah.
2: So when we really think about pain neuroscience education being delivered, it as I mentioned about my residency training, it's it's a paradigm shift, right? So it shifts the way that you're really thinking about patients. And so if we were to randomize one patient to get P&E and another patient not get P&E, but the physical therapist is delivering both of those interventions, it really... <clears throat> provides a lot of conflict in the physical therapist's brain in treating these patients, right? So like, oh, I can't say that to this patient, and I really should say that to this patient. And that really is not going to work well for a study design for a physical therapist who's in the real world, right? We may be able to do that in like laboratory type of settings where we have um physical therapists where that are scientists, and that's their job. But in the clinic, like, PTs have way too much to think about to be like, oh, who is this patient randomized to? So that really that individual type of randomization was not going to be possible for us. So we really started thinking about, well, let's randomize the physical therapist and um, then we'll we'll just include patients that those folks are seeing. Um, And then we kind of get into a little bit of a contamination issue like these physical therapists are treating back-to-back, shoulder-to-shoulder in the clinic every day. And so, um, you know, we choose mentors in a clinic because we're eventually going to start treating in similar ways to the physical therapists that we're next to every day. And so we didn't want contamination between our physical therapists of, oh, this guy is really on to something like using this pain analogy and this alarm system, and I'm going to start using that. Um, So we didn't want these folks interacting a lot between. So <clears throat> we decided to randomize clinics. Um, so you can see my escalation of thought process here. <laughs> so the next escalation is that many of these clinics that we chose, we chose benchmark clinics to use. And having worked in benchmark clinics, I I personally know that there's a lot of um, Of transfer between clinics with physical therapists, they have multiple floating physical therapists between like a region of clinics. And if somebody's out over here and somebody has like some availability in their schedule, they'll jump over at that clinic. And so that just further widened our contamination issue. So we decided clinic regions was really the only way or the best way to mitigate some of those contamination type of issues. So, um, having worked with Benchmark since I graduated, um, and was at this point directing their orthopedic residency program, I had really good relationships with all of these regional directors around Atlanta and Birmingham area. Um, so we, um, contacted them and, and asked them about some free training for your physical therapists. And, um, they were all, they're all super, um, the, the clinic culture there is is very evidence based and really wants to be involved in research. And so um to um to our benefit, they were really just on board with with being able to to jump in on the research project
1: with us. And they really were. I mean that's a lot of clinics that you were able to get in a lot of different clinicians. So no I appreciate that. I was when I was reading the paper Read it again today and I read it obviously when it first came out, but that was one of the things that jumped out to me it was just the the design was for lack of yeah. a better word, pretty.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Derek, and you mentioned something that I don't know that the um the reader always picks up on is that these patients, um, or the physical therapist didn't really know um which patients were enrolled because they were contacted by me when they scheduled for physical therapy. I enrolled them. We did online surveys and an online consent form. And so unless they mentioned it to their physical therapist, the physical therapist never really knew that they were enrolled in a trial. So they didn't know whether or not, oh, they really had to be extra good on their P&E for this patient or whatever the case may be. Truly pragmatic.
0: Yeah. So you guys, I mean, I, I kind of agree. This is crazy. 108 PTs, 319 patients. Um, so it's, it's, to me, it's like a massive thing to you know, coordinate 108 PTs. But <laughs> you, can you talk about uh, what happened and, and what the results were, Elizabeth?
2: Yeah. So um, we ended up... Um, looking at the the practice patterns of these physical therapists and usually an episode of care lasts about six weeks. Um, so we had our baseline measurements taken at um, before they were to see their physical therapist at all. So after they had seen their physical therapist, they weren't eligible um, for our trial anymore. Um, we got outcome. We got an interim outcome measure at two weeks. So these physical therapists normally see their patients two to three times per week. So we, we thought that that would be a good, um, point at which they've had some dosage of peony if they were in that group or they've had some good interaction with their physical therapist at that point. And then we had our main outcomes, our long-term outcome was at 12 weeks. So knowing that most of our Patients would have been would have completed their physical therapy and had a little bit of time after that. Um, With chronic pain, we would have loved to have a longer time point on that, a longer long term outcome. Um, But also this was my dissertation project and I wanted to graduate at some point. So uh, we chose a shorter long term outcome. Um, Our outcomes, the primary outcome was physical function. And we we use patients with chronic spinal pain, so chronic neck or lower back pain, thinking that that was the best group to target with P&E. Um, <clears throat> and we use a promise physical function measure and PROMIS is an NIH um, driven uh, initiative to develop some really good outcome tools. Um It's a computer adaptive test, so that really lowers the burden on the patient. So it ends up usually being about six questions for the patient versus an oswestry that's 10 or an NDI, that uh, neck disability that's 10. And in those cases, we also can't pool those results between neck and back. So, But for the PROMIS physical function measure, that allows us um, to do that. So that was fortuitous for us. Um, we had some other secondary outcome measures as well, like pain, the promise uh, pain interference, pain, our therapeutic alliance, self-efficacy, um, and then just knowledge of pain based on the, the neurophysiology of pain questionnaire. Um, our outcomes ended up insignificant. Um, we had we did um, some very, and I hope we don't ask many questions about this, but, um, some very sophisticated statistical methods, um, in which I, I had to hire a statistician to help me with that. They're, they're on the paper, but, um, you know, some, some very high level stuff that, um, I was really not comfortable, um, calculating, computing for these folks, but, um, there was a null result for our physical function measure. Um, and then we had one significant Um, secondary outcome being self-efficacy at two weeks and 12 weeks in the pain
1: neuroscience education group. All right. So I have a question for you. Even in that one where there was significant difference, the effect sizes were pretty tiny, if anything at all. And I think the confidence intervals were almost down to zero. So like they almost were probably trending more toward non-significance. I read your discussion. Mm-hmm. I also know that discussions are tempered a little bit by reviewers. Mm. All right, so here is your. They were shot. mostly tempered by us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was mostly tempered by us.
2: Uh, were in they? This case.
1: Okay. yeah Okay, good. But but so I think the reader of this paper, especially, I mean, and I love um because I think you know you're a true scientist, and so you go into this into any question. And as if you have, if you have an agenda, get out of research, right? If you don't have an agenda, then that's going to make you a better scientist. And so I do appreciate this and I appreciate that it was published as well, because even sometimes you see where it's, results don't always get published like that, especially in a esteemed journal. So kudos to Payne for actually mm-hmm. publishing this as well. All right. But the clinician. Who is reading this, the clinician who went through the training and was so excited. You went through it, right? You went through a PNE training. You got excited. Seth is, you know, we've all been through things that get us excited. And then you see a paper that comes out like this and you're like, man, didn't really seem to work, right? At least in terms of the statistics and in terms of the results. So, why? What do you think that was? What do you, and I and I read some of the pieces in the discussion. You can certainly expand on those, but I'm curious too, just as like if you had any other musings or thoughts um, beyond the discussion.
2: Yeah. So um, beyond, the, well, some of the things from the discussion, right, is our therapists that we trained in P and E and and the other control group already had a pretty high knowledge of pain. So, of course, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing pain science, but the, they're probably not giving some of the negative. So can, I, can I ask
1: one? I don't want to interrupt, but I want yeah. to interrupt real quick on that question there, on that answer. Yeah. Did you guys test knowledge? Be- I couldn't remember if you tested their knowledge beforehand or not, um, at, like how much knowledge they had about PNE. I know you tested their knowledge after the training sessions, but did you do yeah. a pre-test?
2: Yeah, we did a Top pre-test. Health. Yeah, they they topped out Um, There were multiple. um, Yeah, so they scored 80, I want to say it was 88% on average on their NPQ
1: before training. Okay, so yeah, you're right.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so they're, they're really high. And I really didn't look at that number until after we'd done the training and all of that sort of stuff. Because, I mean, we had lots of things going on. But I was like, oh. That's really high. And, you know, we had some other instances where we're looking at some of the research and training a physical therapist. And they're somewhere at like 40 percent before they do their training and they end up about where ours and ours started. So there's I think that there's definitely some evidence that the the pain mechanism knowledge is much more pervasive um, and is is out there, even if patient, even if physical therapists aren't taking pain courses, right? Because I think it's infiltrating into um, other types of training, whether that be manual training or dry needling training or exercise training and just common culture. Um, I've, you know, I watch CrossFit videos all the time and they're talking about pain mechanisms. I'm like, what? (laughs) Where'd that come from? So I think the knowledge is just out there a little bit more. So that's one thing, right? Is that did our training actually move the needle on their knowledge enough that that is going to make a meaningful change in their outcomes between those two groups? So there's a question mark as far as that goes. Um <clears throat> our the other thing is that we're not completely sure that all of our PE group um was actually doing P and E. Did we improve their knowledge? Yes, I could say from their outcomes we improved their knowledge, um, even though we were pretty close to a ceiling already, and that we improved their attitudes and beliefs about pain um, after the training. But that piece that we talked about about talking to mock patients and talking to patients in the real in the real world, and that's very uncomfortable, um, and. Uh, so we're not sure that they actually were delivering the pain science education or P e the, the way that we would really have liked it um, implemented in the clinic because we had a question that went to our patients at two weeks like did you receive this message from your physical therapist which is essentially like um, my my physical therapist, told me that my pain is not due to actual tissue damage, but is more due to pain processing, or I forget the exact language of the the question. And it wasn't a great question anyway. But um, we had as many people in the PE e group as is the usual care group that answered, yes, My I received that message. So could be multiple problems with that, like a bad question, or did the Did the patients like their physical therapist? And so they're like, yeah, they told me that. Or um, did they actually receive that message? And if that many in the usual care group are also receiving that message, then we just have a problem with, um, you know, thinking we were measuring two different things or that we were looking at two different groups. Um, The, let's see, what else, uh, going back to the question, what else could have made this a, a null result. The the last thing to talk about really is that while the the design of the trial um, is really good, the implementation of this in the real world gets very messy. So I had multiple patients that were randomized to see a trained physical therapist in this clinic. And then something happened. They maybe have had to reschedule or the physical therapist was out that day or something happened and they rescheduled with a clinician that was not trained in PE or vice versa. Um, they had a PE traveling therapist that it randomly came to that clinic and they saw that PE therapist when they were randomized to usual care. It didn't happen that often, but it happened enough. And um it happened i think we had an instance of 44 patients out of the 319 were in opposite groups or and we analyzed them as if they were in the group that we randomized them to and if we really think about what randomization is meant to do it's meant to remove bias from a patient selecting a certain intervention but in this case the patient never knew what group they were in. I never told them that they were in the PE group or the usual care group. So it's not like they said, oh, well, I really want that extra trained therapist and rescheduled. So um, so I, I think that there, there's some work that will need to be done or some thought process by some really highly paid and trained statisticians about, you know, do we really need um, – Intention to treat analysis in these types of cases, um, but that that's that's for a very different type of journal. Um, but that that's one thought um, that we had is that we had some crossover between groups without bias by the patient.
0: Elizabeth, if you guys had an interesting comment towards the end because the self efficacy um, was at least one thing that maybe. As we talked about, kind of trending toward improvements, but obviously the other outcomes didn't. Um, did, did you kind of, as you stepped away from this, do you have any thoughts on self-efficacy and what that means, and and uh, its relationship or or its relationship to other outcomes?
2: Yeah. So um, our We measured specifically pain self-efficacy. So this is despite my pain, I have the confidence that I'll be able to do X, Y, or Z functional activity um, with my current pain level. So um, I think that it's promising that our P&E group um, had improved self-efficacy. So maybe if we're thinking about they have devalued some of the information that they're getting from their pain processing. And Hey, despite what that pain processor is telling me, I feel like I can still play with my kids. So, um, that's, that's, I think a really good start in my thought process is that that is the beginning of the process for someone then to be able to change their functional outcomes. Um, maybe the self-efficacy really didn't change enough to change. So if we're talking statistical terms, it may be that that's a mediator between um, uh, our current functional outcomes and our our later functional outcomes. Um, But uh, as far as just the self-efficacy itself – we do know that it has some implication for outcomes, but it's not the only thing as far as outcomes goes. And uh, so we're not sure exactly what to make of the the difference in pain self efficacy um, for for these patients. And maybe it just wasn't a strong enough change to make a change in their functional outcomes. Mm. I thought I had something else on the top of my mind to say about the pain self-efficacy. Maybe it has something to do more with um, resilience. And resilience is not something that we measured in this trial. Um, Or maybe pain self-efficacy is something that leads to better, longer, way longer term outcomes than our 12 weeks. And we just didn't measure long enough to really see that sort of difference. So definitely a lot of questions surrounding that.
1: Um, uh, so I think these, I, th- I think you When going back to the training program it's interesting. We are doing a study or we just completed a study where we look to train PTs on clinical practice guidelines and implementing guidelines. Right. And we had the exact same problem. Like the people that we actually opened it up to folks. And of course the people that opted in were people that knew a lot about clinical practice guidelines that we were already implementing. And so, of course, the outcomes um, don't always pan out the way that they are. You know, and I think there's a couple ways that you could twist the paper that you're on here. You know, the things that you don't want to say, maybe the wrong interpretation is, is that, well, it doesn't matter if we do formal education and pain education or not. Um, I don't think that that's the message that the paper necessarily has. Um but if i were to go back and 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 so after you you mentioned actually this so i'm going to ask you the question you said um hopefully you don't ask me this question but now i'm going to <laughs> what, what was the lesson learned and where are you wanting to go with this now like so you've done this study you've published this it's it's out there um you know and, and i don't know if you're looking to get an NIH R01 to get a little bit bigger check to do something a little bit different with this study type of a study or, or what, but what was your lessons learned and what do you want to do with this?
2: Yeah. So, um, going right into really busy clinical practice is difficult and measuring, being able to measure the fidelity of our intervention has got to be, um, better than it was in this study. So we, um, I think that um, taking so this was a very, you know, um, later stage effectiveness type of trial and maybe taking a step back um, from that and doing a little bit more of internal controls on whether or not, you know, just the fidelity of our our measures of our intervention were really completed and maybe having a checklist and the electronic medical record. And we thought about that for this, um, it just wasn't feasible. Um, we tried to get that, that in and it was just not possible with the electronic medical record the way that it was at these clinics. Um, so I think that that um, ended up being a big crux of, of what was going on um, in this trial is like, we really need to know what of the messages were delivered um, to the patients. So, uh, that's where—that's really where I would see this going. Is like, can we figure out exactly what is the ex- the active component of PE and making sure that that is delivered um, to a sufficient dose
1: during the plan of care. So, do you think that the education you provided to the therapist? was sufficient and i, I asked this question because i get a lot of people you know like we talk about residency training and fellowship training and like these longer term um, educational programs So i think you need to hit the nail a little bit on the head that you know if we pepper it a little bit there and you know 16 hours is it's good pepper but maybe it's not um, the amount of pepper that's needed do you think maybe there's something there or or, or or what are your thoughts on that
2: yeah i i really think that so we we measured the So we're measuring things right before and after this training, like I mentioned, their their knowledge and their attitudes and beliefs. And those are the things that we're thinking are going to change their practice. Right. And I don't think that it was because of a lack of desire to change practice. If there were some that didn't change their practice, it's likely because of other barriers. Right. Like this is really hard. This is time consuming. Um, This is uncomfortable. Um, So I think that had we added just a couple more hours of a follow up after this. So let's say two to three weeks where like you still are really um, well versed in all of the topics. But now you have some real world type of barriers and problems you ran into in the clinic that you can talk about and talk through with each other and with um, the experts on how do I overcome this conversation that we had? And if we even include, which is so painful, but like a record, like you record yourself talking to a patient about PNE. Um, and then you get some, you know, feedback from the experts on that, that I think that is, that's super laborious for educators. Um, but I don't think there's a better learning tool out there. Um, so I, I think that if I had to do that part again, that that would be the part of training that I would I would um, really advocate for.
1: Sounds a little bit like a small dose of fellow virtual rounds.
2: Sure today. does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, we might also Ooh. see a huge dropout rate of our PTs. <laughs> I
0: think the hair on my neck just stood up a little bit.
2: Yeah, but although painful... You can like that was the most that was the most effective class that I took in in fellowship training.
0: You know, I think maybe after I read these papers, there's just one last kind of thought-provoking question would be: if we can go back to like, what was the origin of PNE, and what do you think they were trying to do with PNE, and because I know there have been some things that, like Adrian Lowe published a DEG patient paper, right? Pain that had similar outcomes to PE. So I wonder if maybe there are other avenues to get it to the same place. And part of the thing that I, I wonder about the clinicians is maybe, you know, maybe they aren't necessarily delivering it, but they're trying to tailor it to the patient and how they're responding a little bit, which is part of kind of the essence of what you get taught about p n e um, so yeah, it is tough in the clinic, but yeah, I don't. Know. What's your impression about PE and V? Is there are there other things that can that we can look to clinically? Yeah,
2: Seth, I think that's a great question. Um, and it really, to me, is getting at the the question that I've been thinking about for if we really think about which patients need PE the most and. I don't think chronic always is telling all of the story, right? Like symptom duration is not the only thing like, yeah, is there probably some um, altered pain processing that happens because the pain has persisted? Yeah, probably. But I think the people that are most debilitated by their pain are the ones that have high fear of pain. And then, therefore, maybe some fear of movement, and then maybe some catastrophizing about their pain. And that those that kind of like um, characterizes a group that would this would be, you know, if we think about our CPRs for lumbar manipulation, and that those would be more of our home run candidates for PE are the ones that we can really remove. And this is what I feel like PE does the best. It removes the threat of further damage by that, that output being there, right? Like, oh, this output, oh, I'm having pain. So I'm definitely making my disc worse. Like that disc stuff is just squirting everywhere because, um, I'm having this type of pain down my leg where it, there are many places cases that we could prove that that's not really happening and this is just a sensitivity of your alarm system so that's not happening and therefore you can just remove some of that anxiety about that pain processing and then move on with some other things and yeah it's going to hurt some but you're you're resilient and you can do these activities despite having that those symptoms so that that's that's really what I, I've been thinking about as far as like who really needs our pE and it goes back to why did we develop it and who is this really meant for? I think that's a very thoughtful question.
1: But to me, it sounds like you already have a few of your future research projects mm-hmm. lined up based off of some of these responses.
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, those are, those are definitely some pieces on the table um, and and then, how do we? The, the other thing is that you know, PE being very burdensome on our physical therapists um, for many of the reasons that we talked about. They they need to know a lot about pain, um, but do they need to be burdened with um, telling the patient about it? Is there some other method that we could get of you know an expert through a video, at least laying out the or an animation? Um or a virtual reality type of um, interaction where the the basics of that are laid out, and then your physical therapist uses language that's consistent with that, and exercises and manual therapy that's consistent with that, but they're not really burned with like, all right,
1: I got to have this pain talk again, and I'm not really good at it,
2: and and those types of things. So.
1: Yeah, and that's actually a very interesting piece too. Just even like, there's probably intangibles. Of the clinicians that you just can't measure. Right. So in your table one, in your baseline characteristics, there are probably baseline characteristics that you just have no way of tapping into in terms of the clinicians and how that might impact the results of the study. It's a very curious thing when you have some sort of standardized process, you've eliminate at least some of that piece there because I think some people naturally can talk about some of these things that some people it's like, you know, calling up um a a potential future significant other out on a date and they just sound really awkward (laughs) on the phone and so um and and a lot of that is intangible stuff that you just can't figure out and you can train that and like you said some people are going to require maybe a whole lot more training and how much that dosing of the training needs to be versus some of the dosing of the training may be a little bit different for other individuals so it's very curious i think way of looking at that in terms of like taking off some of that layer there and putting it into a different format and then seeing where the clinicians go with that. Yeah, Derek,
2: and um, that's very consistent with what we found. And so we did our our multi-level modeling with... Some non specific effects, and we included non specific effects for those clinics and clinic regions and our physical therapists. And we ended up having to account for those physical therapists' non specific effects, um, meaning there's definitely some physical therapists that are definitely good at this. Um, and that made a lot of the outcome the outcome. Um, so, controlling for that, had we used a less sophisticated statistical method, we may have actually found that. You know, there might have been some statistical differences here, but accounting for those non-specific effects from the provider, um, we definitely did not find any
0: non-specific effects making difference. It seems like.
1: Yeah. Well, I know that uh, Elizabeth, we appreciate your time here with us today. We didn't get to talk a lot about manual therapy, um, which is okay. Um, the, but I think. You know, you being a manual therapist and manual therapy trained and that interest is very consistent with where a lot of manual therapists are at. And so hopefully, and I know a lot of PTs and manual therapists really digested this paper and I think really looked to it um, as part of one of those that um, helps them at least pragmatically identify and understand this. And I appreciate your, your honesty and your forthcoming with this paper um, as the lead author on that. And congratulations again on the rose. Award Well deserved on this paper, Um, but it was great to have you on the show any any parting words of wisdom for our listeners
2: I'd say uh, Some of the messages that we talked about earlier is that you know, I don't think it's a hands-on versus hands-off method I think it's just finding the middle ground where you're maximizing your effects from both of those um, Modalities if you will Um, so Um, I, I think that that's a good message to to walk away with. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for being on the show.